to Cinemakers. This is episode 44, Dunkirk from 2017, directed by Christopher Nolan. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm a very bored Chris Podcasts. Wait, you didn't like this movie? Oh no. Nope. Wow. Wow. I have to I have to rewrite my uh, little my write-up for the, the website. <laughs> Wait, did you already write that we all loved it? <laughs> I did. Oh. Because I assumed that I was I assumed that, that was the case. I knew that you loved it. So here here's the interesting thing, and I was a little worried You really Hillary this one, Joey. There was a kernel in the back of my head that I was worried about, Chris, because on my letterbox, almost everyone I follow gives it a four and a half or five stars. And then our buddy from the 15 minutes episode of uh, Watch the Throne, Mike, Awesome Wolf Southern, gave it one star and said he was so bored, not engrossed in it, couldn't tell who was who, didn't care. And I was like, "Uh oh, (laughs) so there's there's there is another camp to this. And I was like, maybe I was like, no, Chris is going to like it. But I guess not. I uh, right, so. Look, I, I finished the movie and I I was pretty bored. This, despite being one of his shortest movies, felt like his longest to me. Really? I bet it was great in IMAX. I bet it's like an Avatar thing where like it being really beautiful and loud and a lot of big zoomies and things like that made it kind of distracting from the fact that really nothing happens in this movie. Well, it's like an evacuation. So like, yeah, not very much. It's a lot of waiting around on a beach for boats to come pick you up and stuff. Yeah. I was expecting a more conventional war film, like with battles and stuff, and this doesn't exactly have that. It's kind of a different thing like that, and I like that about it. But I'll let you know, Chris, I saw this in theaters, in the IMAX, with the sound, and that was amazing. I'm sure. It was one of like the best cinematic experiences I had because it was just an assault on the senses, and I love that. And, and rewatching it, yes, a lot of that is sort of lost when you're watching it at home, you know, without a major sound system and everything. But I still very much enjoyed this movie. I mean, not to humble brag, but with my TV and my sound system, I mean, it's definitely better in IMAX, but here I enjoyed it last night. I enjoyed it so much that I watched it again this morning. Like, I was like, oh no, I want to just do this again. I think there are times where, like, there's long stretches where there's, like, no dialogue. Like, I think the script was, like, 75 pages, and apparently his original idea was to sort of do this as, like, an improvised movie, because you're right, Chris, like, there's not a lot that happens. It's, like, it's people waiting to get rescued, or trying to rescue people, or just trying to shoot other planes out of the sky, but there's something about the way that he edits all together, and I think it's called like the snowball editing or something, that it really builds in a way that I think the best parts of, for me at least, the best parts of like Inception and other ones of his movies, like The Dark Knight and stuff, where there's like things happening simultaneously, this cross-cutting between the, all three of them, that it works really well for me. I would love to read a quote from a guy I've quoted on on this run of Cinemakers a couple of times before, who generally likes Christopher Nolan. I, I, I really agree with him um, on this one. This is Walter Shaw from Film Freak Central. The, the closing of his Dunkirk review, which he gave uh, one and a half star out of four stars, uh, he said, It reminds me of Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, a film by a filmmaker I like that's finally guilty of everything the filmmaker had previously been accused of, which I really agree with. This feels like the Nolaniest of the Nolan movies, and I hate it because of that, and it makes me wonder if I actually like Christopher Nolan. <laughs> it's so weird because I kind of feel the other way around like I feel like this is the least Nolan of his work yeah there's actual like we can actually sit and watch a shot for over a couple seconds like he's holding the frame like I love the idea of it almost being like a silent film or at least a film sans dialogue like just pure cinema just telling a story with pictures I love the editing motif between the three different 
time periods and how that converges. Like that to me is pretty much the only Nolan element I could really put my finger on after that in the large format film that he shoots on basically at this point becoming like his his trademark but pretty much just the way he messes with time is the only way I was able to tell that this was like a Christopher Nolan film it really feels like not a completely different filmmaker but but someone who's definitely grown out of his comfort zone and and is trying to sort of evolve into something different so one thing that I do want to say that we've been pleading for it all run long. We got an email from Tobin for this episode because I had to call him out on Twitter because I was like, hey, we keep saying the episodes. I'm not sure if you're listening or not, but like we want to hear because I think we posted something about The Dark Knight and it was like a very positive tweet because we all love that movie. I mean, like Chris had problems with it. We all sort of had problems with it. We all love that movie in the end. And then Nick Jenkins, host of Real Bad here on the Podcast Network, was like, I'm sure Tobin has some ideas about it or some thoughts about it. And he responded and I was like, hey, man, we've been waiting for you to like let us know what you think. So he wrote in. So here's a lesson to everybody. Bully people and they'll email you. That's what I learned. <laughs> Cyberbully. We were cyberbullies now? <laughs> yes, we were cyberbullies. Okay. I taught Ariana Grande the same lesson. <laughs> yeah. Subject line, The Dark Knight from Tobin says, Dear Joey, Mike, and Chris, I've now listened to your entire episode on The Dark Knight after being publicly scolded for avoiding the Nolan season of Cinemakers. And I must say, while my opinion of the movie has not improved, I found your discussion delightful. Chris, in particular, seemed to echo my own struggles reconciling Nolan's scattershot politics and philosophy. I just think it bothers me more than it does you guys. That and the, in all capital letters, lazy writing. Then again, just his own line, lazy. Anyway, keep up with the good work, and I'll see you on the beaches of Dunkirk. Yours, fitfully, Tobin. So what I think is interesting is that I think Tobin and Mike agree that this is the least Nolan he's been in a while, but that makes Tobin like this, and it makes Chris... I don't know. Like it, it feels like there's like there should be more of a connection, more of a parallel here, but there's not. Like I'm just I'm having a hard time processing in my brain the fact that Chris doesn't like it and he thinks that it's super Nolan. Because I'm on the side of Tobin and Mike. I think that it's not like that. I think it's a very simply told story, and it's not overwrought by ideas or lessons or politics or messages. It's just these are boys that need to come home. We're gonna try to get them home, and like that's it. I don't understand how he likes this movie if he gets bugged by Nolan's, like, scattershot political ideas, because this doesn't do much in regards to that, and this is the movie that, by and large, it's a fucking war movie. You can't have art without politics, first off. Like, you cannot have a war movie without some politics, and this somehow has dumb politics? Like, it's... Dumbkirk? Dumbkirk, yes. (laughs) Yes, excellent. There's a couple of ideas here. I think the one thing he is trying to say is that there's a disconnect between the ridiculous propaganda stories we tell about the people who go to war and the realities of war, which is kind of summed up in the last five minutes of that. But that's that's generous because I don't think Nolan really has anything to actually say other than look at this pretty movie I made. Um, at the same time, I appreciate that this is an unglamorous war movie because if you make a glamorous war movie after like, I don't know, like fucking really Vietnam, like you're an asshole probably. And I also appreciate that the slate of war movies that we've had in the last post 9-11 era has been a lot of American oorah exceptionalism dying while shooting like two machine guns into the air and screaming Semper Fi and like thinking about your your horse daughter. This is like British exceptionalism, which is very politely lining up to die. Well, have you seen Fury? I have not seen Fury, no. Because Fury, I think... Maybe the best war movie, at least the one I've ever seen. It's 
phenomenal. We covered it for all his movies, the Shia LaBeouf movie. It is sort of like a, you know, America, America's great, kind of, but it's also like, these guys are kind of assholes, too. Like, I would say check out Fury, because I think Fury really bucks the trend, because Fury came out, like, four or five years ago? Four years ago, I think. And it really disrupts what I think has been probably a trend. I actually don't know, like, what movies, what, what do you point to? I'm, trying, I'm having a hard time coming up with examples like what sort of pro-america i guess like maybe american sniper but that's also based on like i mean that's a clint eastwood thing but what else what like what are, what are you pointing to uh in the last couple of years you mean yeah since since 9-11 Baghazi. what what the fuck's the name of the Baghazi movie oh 13 hours or whatever sure yeah the one the one with the the horse soldiers but you also i hope you realize that like i see every movie and i even didn't see 13 hours the sequels to Jarhead. I mean, I I know, but there's like you realize that we are Northeast, you know, libtards. Like there's a market to the the like the Midwest chud who thinks that he would be great in the army because he's got a gold star in Call of Duty. Like we we we've avoided these kind of consciously and subconsciously, but there is a mass market for this trash. But I think there's a mass market for a lot of trash, and I think. What's interesting, maybe, is that the same people that you think, and I, I might be wrong here, but I feel like the same people you think would be all about those movies, I feel like would also be about a lot of the Christopher Nolan movies. Because we've talked for a while about how many of his movies are like fun, big, bombastic movies that if you want to feel smart, you can sort of take a lesson away, or you can just see Batman punching guys. Like, I feel like there's not a huge disconnect. So for him to do this instead of whatever else, like, whatever sort of lines up with the other war movies of the last decade or so, like, I feel like there's a disconnect there. Maybe not, but I, I feel like there's, I feel like most of what he's done could fall in line with, like, in a way, like a 13 hours. Oh, see, no, I think that this, I mean, we need unglamorous war movies, like, you know, those other movies are are the kind of movies that people who see enlisting is what made me the man I am today scene from Starship Troopers. And it's like, yes, I love the army. And like, they don't see the satire. Like, you need war movies that are like disgusting and brutal and not fun and don't have main characters with like four to one KD ratios of brown children. Like, it's important to have these movies. It just, Christopher Nolan's not the guy to make it. I think I hear you, because, like, this doesn't feel like a war movie because of that. Like, there is really no, like, plot, per se, you know? And, like, we don't meet a bunch of ragtag guys going off to battle and, like, get connected. And you never see the Germans. I do like that, yeah. The most, I think, we get connected to are, like, the people on the boat. But, like, even that isn't fleshed out enough to service the entire movie. And I think maybe Tom Hardy's pilot is, like, the closest, you know, I get to actually caring about, like, someone personally in this movie but what that leaves is like he's created sort of like more of a ride I guess it's like a very subjective type of movie where we're on the beach we're in the boat we're in the sky and we're we're kind of just like going through those motions you know and just by virtue of watching an evacuation is like he's made a movie he's just sort of like it's almost like a weird sort of documentary style like what are they like a reenactment almost you know but it's like a super hollywood high grade reenactment personally i find it entertaining i find it as a bit of a respite from those types of war films and maybe because it's from across the pond and it doesn't have a lot of that you know hoorah america like sensibility to it that uh it gives it its own sort of unique sort of flavor and feeling to it but i mean i could totally understand people coming to this feeling a little bored 
wondering when the action's going to start. I, there is action, but it's not like, you know, they never tee up and start off and go like, all right, here we go. We're, we're going to go fight a battle now. Like, let's get ready. It's a lot of sneak attack and things like that. It's like almost maybe more of like they're being stalked. Like, uh, you know, I'm not saying there's a lot of horror elements, but I mean, one parallel I can come along, I, I, I kind of see is like they're being stalked by, you know, the Germans in a, in a way where you never know when it's coming. They're just going to sort of jump out around the corner and shoot at you in, in a sense. But I, I understand why people may not like that about this or why it sort of like is against war film expectation. But I did like it. I found it kind of refreshing. I totally agree with a lot of what you said. And I think the other stance I'm going to take is I don't think this is much of a war movie. I think this owes a lot more to disaster films, both in the way that it's shot and the things that happen. It's it's almost more Poseidon adventure-y at times. And some of the, the drowning sequences are very intense and very well done. And especially in real life, because it was just a, a monumental, like, military strategic fuck-up that it was a, a disaster. Which they addressed at the very end when he was reading the newspaper out loud. Right, exactly. And I think that ties into the idea of war necessitating propaganda as maybe the theme of this movie, if there is a political theme to be made. And I also like that Churchill's speech is just relegated to, like, this exhausted guy reading it and not, like, this big bombastic sound bite or something like that. I also find it boring, not because there's no quote-unquote action. Like, I don't really I don't really give a shit about that. Th- there were vignettes that were really well done. I liked a lot of what happened with Killian Murphy. Uh, I liked the, the target practice scene a lot. I wish there was more of that. Something that I think Nolan does well, and we've talked about this before, is he makes characters that you are manipulated into feeling for, and there was no character in this movie. There was not a single character other than Boat Dad. There were a bunch of people who existed and I guess had names and they did some things. But between the fact that you never had time to know anybody, I thought the editing and the the storytelling was fucking atrocious. And like, if there is a movie that does not need like nonlinear storytelling, it is this one. Just tell a story for once, Chris. Come on. I, I couldn't be invested in anybody. So I just felt like I was being jerked around and I never I never had time to settle. And in the long term, it just made me bored. I was waiting for the next interesting visual. I will say this. The one thing that definitely didn't play as well this time, and I think because, like I was saying earlier, in the theater, you're just way more immersed, is the stuff on that boat with the young boy. I understand the point of it. I just feel like it didn't exactly play well the second time around. This is only the second time I've ever seen this movie, too. So once in theaters and, and then once for this show. But I was sort of saying to myself this time around, like, wow, they had an opportunity to sort of maybe even base this whole film around the three people on that boat and, you know, start with them and really get to sort of focus on them. And I mean, it's a different, that's a whole different type of movie, but I'm thinking like that would have been a really good movie too, because then when, when the boy sort of reaches his tragic end, it would have a lot, a, it would have any impact. I, I really did not feel the impact of it until much later at the end of the movie when like his name's in the paper and you realize, oh, okay, like everybody, no matter how much they contributed, it could be a hero to the cause like that. And I, I did like the idea of it, but I didn't think the execution was very well done. Just to sort of throw out something there that, uh, just to let you know, I don't feel like this movie is like a perfect movie or infallible. I do I do understand and, and can recognize it's got symptoms and issues and stuff, but uh, I just feel like they're minimal in my mind in relation to everything else going on. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that just like what this movie does that other movies don't or can't just outweighs that. Like there's a real sense of like between the score and the cutting and just like how close you are, like for instance, the Tom Hardy, like there's just stuff in this movie that makes you feel like you're part of it in ways that I haven't really felt 
maybe since like Saving Private Ryan, which apparently he didn't want to create that same sort of tension. Like I read something that like he said that he didn't want to have that same kind of feeling, but I feel like you kind of do, right? Like it's it's kind of like, oh no, war is terrible. But yeah, I mean, that's like that's what I was saying. You need to have a war movie that is not glamorous in the modern age or else you're just an asshole. And I never really felt that danger outside of individual set pieces outside of that opening, that opening where they're running through the streets and everyone's just getting gunned down. I really liked it. And I was in and I thought I was going to get a, a really good movie and I just, I just, it just kind of fell off from there. Well, what I love about that opening is that very few movies, and we talked about this on The Place Beyond the Pines, which I guess it's kind of a spoiler for that. It's also the same thing in Death Proof. Like, I love that when you're introduced to characters and then they just suddenly die because you're trained to be like, oh, these are the people I'm going to be following. And then you see five or six boys at the beginning and then all but one die. You're like, oh, huh. Now what? And I feel like that really kind of sets the tone. And I think this is why not getting to know any of these guys is obviously intentional, because I think it's not like their story. It's the collective their story. And I feel like creating like narratives or backstories more than like this is the guy who saw another guy burying someone on the beach. And now they're together because they're trying to get on this boat to get out. Like aside from like going deeper than that, I feel like you would kind of not maybe minimize what this actually was, but by keeping it generic and broad and not specific, I feel like you're telling everyone's story as opposed to like, oh, that's just some guy that like, that wasn't me. But like when you don't have, you know, necessarily names or specific backstories or specific interactions or whatever, it's just a bunch of dudes fighting for their lives, trying to get home, trying to get away from war. I do like that idea. And I think that is what he's going for. The idea that they're all in this like together, like what you feel for one, you should feel sort of for all of them in a way, I guess. But I don't know that that is exactly the best for like movie storytelling because like I'm having a hard time connecting with everybody without being able to at least take one of them and be like, okay, this is sort of like the primer or the baseline and he is how I'm supposed to feel about everyone else. I mean, they, they kind of, I do like the opening and yeah, I, I get there a little bit where I realize we're supposed to be following the survivor of that sort of like like, um, chase through the streets and everything. But I just, again, I think, like, if he just maybe... I know it's not what he wants to do, but again, I feel like if he just maybe sat down with two of the soldiers and they had, you know, just like a two- or three-minute talk about something, then I could definitely be like, all right, I'm good to go. But we don't really get any of that until they're hiding in the boat and they're getting shot at in the boat, and then that's, like, maybe the most dialogue in the movie, and, and they realize one of them is a French guy who they thought might be a German spy. It's like, okay, this is cool stuff and everything, but I feel like maybe it's a little too late to start getting into this thing. If we're going to be more of, like, a silent film, let's keep it that way. If not, like, let's, you know, use this type of dialogues to set up a character earlier on instead of, you know, almost at the end of the movie, like, using it as a reveal, as, oh, the guy we've been following the whole time who we thought was an Englishman is actually a Frenchman. It's like, all right, well, that didn't really, that wasn't, that didn't land for me, especially. I think in the same way as, like, you don't know anybody, it's, again, just sort of, like, this collective, like, you don't know anything. Like, it's all kind of the fog of war in a way like you don't know who anybody is what anything is and it's just anybody can be anything and like if that guy is a german spy you know then what like then it becomes a different movie like i feel like you put a bunch of guys in a boat like you need to get them out of that boat in some way and i don't have a problem with that i also think it just sort of plays into that like we don't know anything about anything that's going on and anyone can be anyone because when you're on the beach with a bunch of guys like you might have been there you might have been sent over as a team or a platoon or troop or whatever the british army calls it but you're probably not with those people anymore and it's just you and a bunch of guys your age that you've never seen before and you don't know who or what anything is 
Yeah, everyone's a stranger pretty much to each other. Yeah, and and while I do like that, I just think like that is kind of it. Is, it does make it just a little difficult in a movie where I'm just saying in general we've been kind of conditioned to watch films in a certain way, and when a movie sort of skips a step or decides to omit something, um, it takes some time, at least for me, to like adjust to that. And I think, but that's why I like Nolan because that's what he that's what he tries to do at least once or twice with like most of his films is be unconventional and try and do stuff that other people aren't trying. So I, I always give him credit, even even when he fails or if it doesn't land as, as hard as it could, to at least be, you know, attempting these kinds of things. The moment that I really knew that, I guess, I mean, it was kind of the last couple of seconds of the movie when it really drove it home. But throughout, the thing that kept reminding me that I was not connected to this film was Tom Hardy's arc in the plane. Despite being like the, the most visually appealing sequences in the film, I just I just kept thinking to myself, like, what if this wasn't Tom Hardy? Like, what if I didn't know that behind that mask was Tom Hardy? And it might as well not be, because you don't see him for 99% of the movie. Like, would I give a shit if I didn't know this was an actor I enjoyed? Just on the fact that it was an actor, like, not his character that he was portraying, or not the things he was doing, just that I knew it was Tom Hardy, would I have given a shit? And the answer is probably no. How did you feel about his partner? Like, when, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's not Tom Hardy, and he's kind of in the same situation. I didn't give a shit until, I mean, I thought the drowning sequences were really interesting and, and well done, and I personally find that terrifying, though, so it, it's tough to separate that and see it kind of more objectively, because I, I do find that kind of stuff really terrifying. I thought that was the best scene in the movie, probably, was the guy trying to break out of the cockpit, again, followed up by the, the target practice sequence in the in the Belgian boat. So yeah, I, I did connect to that. I did feel nervous for him, but only because it was something that kind of is a personal fear of mine. Nothing, none of it really connected on an emotional level. Like everything, everything just kind of whiffed for me. Every single aspect. Like I can't, I can't think of anything. Remember a couple of episodes ago when I said I wish Christopher Nolan would direct a horror movie? I take that back. I don't think he has it in him. I don't think he has the patience to set stuff up and pay it off. I don't think he has the patience to build a character only to then like get rid of them to create like, you know, emotional dissonance. I don't think he could, he could do that. I think he simultaneously cares too much and cares too little like they say that when you're writing you have to kill your darlings in editing and i don't i don't think he's capable of it there's too much and too little at the same time in, in the strangest dichotomy man it's amazing to me that like one movie has made you almost pull a complete 180 on no. christopher <laughs> like everything you thought was true is no longer true like black is white <laughs> up is down tom hardy still has a face mask on i'm just seeing the flaws you know the, the cracks in in the surface and uh it's fine like i still love all the stuff i'm still looking forward to his next movie i just think there's some movies that you know some people shouldn't do like John Carpenter probably shouldn't do a rom-com I'd watch it if he did but he probably shouldn't I bet the score would be fantastic but like Christopher Nolan just shouldn't do a war movie and he, he probably shouldn't do a horror movie and he should stick to some more big kaboom loud vibrant character based punch kicky kind of movies I still want to see him make a horror film. I still think he's got it in him. I don't think it's a slasher film. I think it's more of like a psychological horror kind of thing. But I, I still have faith in him. I don't think we're ever going to get it. I think he's sort of like used up all of those things throughout like the last few movies, especially in Batman. I think there's a lot in there. But I, I'd still go for it. I, I think for me, what I want out of him most is another space film. I think that to me is like probably one of his best canvases that he's worked on yet is outer space. Just quickly to go back to like the Tom Hardy 
security stuff real quick. I think, you know, personally for me, and it is hard to tell because we do know it's Tom Hardy, but that stuff actually turned out to be some of my favorite stuff in this movie. I, I'd say it's the, the airplane stuff, then the people on the boat, and then the stuff at the beach, really. Even though I like it all, I just say if I had to pick. Just because that felt the most, like, authentic to me, and it's a situation, one of which, like, I feel like I will never be, like, a guy flying one of those planes, and now I feel like I know pretty much what it must have felt like to fly one of those planes except not fly it like just the sort of the stress the panic or whatever like all the things that could go wrong up there and when he realizes that when he gets to the point where he's like i don't have enough fuel to go back but i'm gonna keep on with this mission like at that point for me which was fairly early i was like okay i I might not know this character i might not know who he is or anything about him but i do like all this plane stuff up here in the sequence and i like these dudes in these fighter pilots and i do think if it was and Tom Hardy, I'd still be down with that because I like his sort of, um, I like that, like his partner that survives too. I thought that was pretty interesting, you know, how he, how he connected to the rest of the, of the different parts of the movie and stuff. So, I mean, just personally for me, that's like some of my favorite stuff. Yeah, I think the Tom Hardy stuff is incredible. Like, I love, I think it's just, it's the effect of the editing. It's just the way that he saves the day kind of in three different timelines. You know what I mean? Like, he does his job, like, actually not, not even in his, actually. It's just like in the other two, like he saves the boat and he saves Tobin's man Kenneth Branagh on the on the mole, aka the pier, at once. I'm like, you just see this one plane take down this other plane, and it's this perfect coalescence of all three stories. And I think that works really well. I really dug it. I think the movie is beautiful when he's filming in the sky, and like the the camera's like tilting back and forth. Like you're he's probably in a plane, just like filming other planes, or what? I don't know what I don't know what's going on, but it it looks gorgeous. I mean, the the color palette is Nolan-y as hell. I mean, it's it's another kind of hallmark of him is the 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 deep grays. He loves making water really blue stand out against the the grayest, dingiest environments. Let me see if there's, let me see what trivia, I mean, this is the third time in the last month or so that we're recording that Chris, Mike, and I have talked about a movie with Tom Hardy where his face is covered for most of the movie between Dark Knight Rises and this and Mad Max Fury Road over on Watch the Throne. Oh, I thought just because he's like a famous guy, but like not of my generation, I had to look up who Harry Styles played. He played a great little shithead. I I thought he was, he was great. Which one was he? Because Mike and I were talking before you came on, like, we don't know who he is. We know he's a beach boy. He's not one of the beach boys, but (laughs) like... Like, he was in a pop group, right? <laughs> yeah. He plays Brian Wilson. Maybe. <laughs> plays the older Brian Wilson, too, which is weird. So. He's the Paul Dano and the other role. John Cusack, yeah. Uh, Quentin, cast Harry Styles as the Wilson brother in your Manson movie that is coming out. Yeah. He was just, he was like the shithead in the uh, in the target practice sequence who was trying to kick the guy off the boat. He was very looking out for himself. I mean, it's, it's tough because, you don't. Th- there's no reason to remember any characters. He's one of the first people that the two kids in the land portion pull under the dock when that boat is sinking or under the pier. It's tough because like, this is kind of proving the point of that there's no, like the fact that you can't remember individual people, you can just remember set pieces makes it kind of tough. No, but that's what I like about it. I mean, I get why it, it happened. I get the, the point he's trying to make there. It's just not It's just not a good one. I remember watching this movie with my sister when I got it on Blu-ray, and she hadn't seen it yet, and she didn't want to watch the whole thing, but I was like, just watch a little bit of it. And every time a new guy came on screen, I'm like, is that Harry Styles? She's like, no. I was like, is that Harry Styles? She's like, no. I was like, who is? I don't get it. But a lot of the trivia, or a couple things of the trivia on IMDb was about, they sort of saw it as like stunt casting, that like, oh, you're going to cast this guy who like just broke free of the world's biggest boy band or whatever. Number one. One, apparently Christopher Nolan compared it and I this is probably gonna maybe bother everyone possibly he compared it to uh, casting Heath Ledger in as much as the public was like that's a dumb idea and then 
it worked out for the most part. And then number two, apparently he auditioned like thousands of kids to play these roles. And he just said that Harry Styles just, quote, had it. Which, if you're a rock star, I'm, just, I'm assuming you're able to like sell yourself an audition. But I don't think it's necessarily stunt casting, but I can sort of see why you might think that. I, I honestly think part of the reason might be marketing where to just get a different generation in to see one of his movies possibly or something because like honestly he is they are indistinguishable like I watched a little interview thing after and, and like he was talking and it even said Harry Styles and I'm looking directly at him I was like I still don't I still don't recognize <laughs> you kid like I'm sorry it's just these I don't know but I do understand like why Christopher Nolan might be like he's got it because yeah you know you need like natural charisma to be a pop star and all that kind of thing and so I'm sure he had the kind of like drive and ethic and sort of determination that Christopher Nolan was looking for to go sit on a beach for a couple of months and then like be in the water for like 12 hours a day like again like this is a like the environment like I, I just like Christopher Nolan's movies and us doing this series has just made me so much more conscious than I used to be of where and how movies are shot like when they're done in a natural environment like this they're on the sea they're on the beach you know it just it takes me back to the land of the midnight sun and insomnia where I wonder if part of his trick is um, making movies where you don't really need to act you just get into an environment and react to it because it's so you know it's so extreme or whatever so I think a little bit of that might be going on here too about like not quite acting but more or less just like like reacting to the environment. I think I've told this story on a podcast before. I don't know which one. But when I went to go see Spring Breakers in theaters, 90% of the audience thought they were there to see like a bikini and like titties movie. And I imagine for like the same reason that there are people there to see like Selena Gomez or Vanessa High School Musical. Vanessa Hudgens. I genuinely could not remember her name. I'm sorry. But at the end of the movie, some dude in front of me stood up and went, that was the gayest movie I've ever seen in my life. And I laughed so fucking hard, I think I popped a blood vessel in my eye. But I just imagined that there was, like, some, like, British, like, chav girl who, like, watched that movie and was just like, that was the bloody gayest movie I've ever seen in my life. I'm gonna go nick some crisps from a Tesco. I was just so mad that, like, Harry Styles was all, all grimy and, and didn't do much in that movie. And, and I love that idea. So fuck stunt casting. Do more of that. He didn't sing one blimey song. <laughs> I am looking forward to you and Nico covering, eventually, One Direction, because I straight up know no One Direction songs. Also, I'm excited to hear, we are recording this before... Actually, okay, so this episode comes out September 17th, I believe, two days ago on September 15th, Chris and Nico will have counted down the top 50 songs yeah. on Rolling Stone's list of the greatest songs of the century so far, and just missing the cut from the first half is the Harry Styles song, Sign of the Times, which I'm sure, here's my guess for your reactions to that. Don't know the song, but you don't think it's going to be on the list in 10 years, but it's important to have it on the list because of the cultural significance, but you're sort of indifferent to it that neither of you know it. However, before I get the actual result from you, because I want you to spoil it, okay. I actually really like that song, like a lot. Like I never heard it before the list, and I really like that song. Well, here's the impression it made on me is I don't even fucking remember what my reaction was. Exactly. Well, I just just based on, because as we're recording this, not that long ago, you and Nico put out the episode of you guys counting down numbers 151, and a lot of the things I think you had insightful, I mean, you were really harsh on a lot of the things that I liked, like Radiohead, you were like, when she know, I, I, I get it, but... Part of that is just posturing because of you, really. 
I understand that. I totally get that. I'm fine with that. It's just a rib at this point. You know, I, I feel like I'm in the room with you guys when you record that sometimes. But I think you made, and this is just very much getting off on a tangent, but I feel like your articulation of, like, why these songs, like Bees in the Trap or Bodak Yellow or whatever, like, why they should be on the list now or why they are on the list, but, you know, why they won't be in another five or ten years or whatever. And I think it's just interesting to examine Harry Styles in one direction and Harry Styles' role in this movie as this, like, point in time that, like, who knows? Like, I don't know. Is he doing more acting or is this, like, it? Like, I don't know. Is he going to do more? Because maybe? Like, this could be a turning point. I don't know. He could be the British Justin Timberlake, you know, who went from NSYNC to become, like, a really, really good actor. So you never know. It's a good... It's this, though. I mean, this is a better jumping off point, I feel, because, you know, you're in a movie like this, you get taken more seriously than if you're just in, like, British Boner Patrol or something like (laughs) that, and you're doing, like, some kind of teen comedy thing. So at least, like, he's got a step in the right direction, one step in the right direction, perhaps, in this career. According to both Letterboxd and IMDb, he's been in a ton of things, and almost all of yeah. them are One Direction related. Yeah. I don't think he's done any more acting. I don't think he's in anything coming up. He was fine. I mean, put him in more stuff. Who gives a shit? He was he was fine. Yeah, he didn't he didn't ruin the movie, right? It's not like... no. <laughs> I don't know who he was, so he couldn't have ruined the movie. Exactly, exactly. Like that's another thing. Like he's totally whatever is the thing. So like he's got a he needs like a leading role to really stand out. So I feel like this was a good sort of thing. Maybe his agent was like, let's get you in something small where you like don't really stick out like a sore thumb or anything and you could just sort of like play the background and yeah you won't be a major player and see if you actually have like a feel for it or something so i have two little bits of trivia about the academy awards this was nominated for eight oscars including best picture it ties the record for christopher nolan movie being nominated for eight awards both the dark knight and inception both nominated for eight awards interestingly a little bit is that just like when we talked about on mad max Fury road this was nominated for a whole bunch of awards and not a single acting award just like like Fury Road, both Tom Hardy movies, where his face is covered, you know, basically technical masterpieces that the Academy was like, yeah, we get it, but like, not acting. There's no one to really nominate, right? I feel like there isn't, like, Kenneth Brenner doesn't have enough screen time. Nobody has enough screen time, except for maybe Tom Hardy, and like we were saying, you don't know it's him. Right, right. So that's unusual, though, that there, you really can't nominate anyone from this movie for Best Actor. That's strange. It was nominated for, did not win, production design, cinematography, directing, Best Picture, and Best Original Score. It won for sound mixing, sound editing, and film editing. That's insane. That's insane. Fucking, those are like the things that I would point out as being the absolute worst in this movie. Really? The editing? Yeah, the I thought the I just I just hate the editing's fine, whatever. I just hated the way it told the story. And maybe it's it worked better on a on a better sound system, but I couldn't understand a word people were saying and it wasn't the accents, it was because it was mixed so low. Han solo? No. And I I guess maybe he was going for the loudness and the chaos of war around you, but like I just I couldn't fucking hear most of what people were saying throughout this movie. I almost wonder nowadays because that was a that was a big criticism I heard about Interstellar is like what is Michael Caine saying like it's not his accent but I just can't hear him or I can't hear this or hear that I wonder if that is something to do with the cameras they're using there's such like loud cameras that maybe like when they're doing ADR that throws the mix off or I don't know I just wonder if it's a technical reason or if it's a thing that Nolan likes to do where he just is like oh it's not exactly so much what they're saying but it's like the inflection in their voice or it's just the emotion 
in their face or so. I wish he would say so or something. I wish there was an answer to that because I have I have heard that criticism over the p- course of like his last two or three movies. Well, I mean, the same thing with Tom Hardy in Dark Knight Rises, right? Like a different problem, yeah. but still the same thing. Like, what is he saying? The only other thing I want to say is, oh, actually, in terms of the sound, they had a bunch of people who were at Dunkirk. 30 of them showed up to the premiere in London and people asked what they thought of. They thought it was very accurate. They said that the reality of it was much quieter than the movie was. That with movies like score and everything, like it was apparently just a very quiet, probably like very uncomfortable, terrifying time just waiting and like, you know, waiting for to hear planes. Like you probably don't want to hear planes, do want to hear boats. Like now that I'm hearing that, I almost wish that he cut out the score on the beach entirely because like I, I wasn't really like that affected by the score in this I thought there were moments where it it, it added like some momentum and stuff but ultimately like I, I was like yeah I just want to hear sort of the waves crashing the wind blowing and then the distant sort of hum of a of a fighter pilot as he gets closer and then you know the realization that they're about to drop a bomb on us on this beach or something because that would just go back to sort of the like horror sort of vibe just make it extremely eerie on that beach like the dead silence and the calm and the quiet and stuff and then just suddenly like a plane like creeping up on you and then you just have nowhere to run so that would have been um that would have been pretty cool but i'm not directing the movie so (laughs) what can you do I mean, I love the score when there's, like, the ticking watch, like, the wristwatch, because that, like, adds a real sense of dread, I think. There was one thing that I read that said that there, like, in every song there was, like, a ticking, that the ticking doesn't stop till they're at the end, like, on the train. But, like, that, that's just straight up a lie. Like, that's just another, hey, fact check IMDb, people, because there's not ticking in a lot of songs. I think it's early on there's a lot of ticking, but, like, or maybe it's just ticking until they sit down and be, I don't know what, I don't know what they're saying. But I like the ticking, is what I'm trying to say. I don't know if you guys have finalized lists. Do we want to sort of reflect back on these 10 episodes and rank the movies in terms of favorites or however you want to rank them? Oh, sure. I think I could do that. Let me just pull up a list of all of them. Sure. I'll go first because I have mine in front of me. Again, I don't know the list that I do on Letterboxd and everything. Like, I don't know what these actually mean. It's a combination of like what I want to rewatch the most and what I think is the best and what I just like the most. So from the bottom is following and then insomnia. And then there's like a big old jump. Then inception, which I just wasn't crazy about. Then Dark Knight Rises, Dark Knight, Batman Begins in 765. I have this in four, Prestige 3, Memento 2, Interstellar 1. I don't think Interstellar is his best movie, but I think, you know, as Mike and I talked about on that episode, it just like works for me. Like it's just what I want to see. You know, it's the emotions that I want to see. It's space. That's my list. So top down, Interstellar, Memento, Prestige, Dunkirk, Batman Trilogy, Inception, Insomnia following. So I'll just go from one. I'll just start at one. My favorite Christopher Nolan movie, I don't think it's ever going to change, is The Prestige. I just love it. I just, uh, I just, uh, it's one of the movies I think I've actually seen the most now that I think about it at where I am. Uh, so I went Prestige, Memento, and then I went Dunkirk, believe it or not. Then Dark Knight, Batman Begins, because I just have an affinity for those two Batman movies. They're the best. Then Interstellar, Inception, Dark Knight Rises, and Insomnia, then Following. Wow, you have an Interstellar super low. Like, I thought you were really high on that. I, I am. No, well, that's the thing. Like, I'm really high on all these movies. If you look at the list, like, it's like five star, five star, five star. It's like six movies with five stars stopping at Interstellar, you know, and he's only there because I think I grew up more of a comic book fan 
uh, and sci-fi came a little later. And as far as like, I think I'd just rather rewatch a Batman movie on the fly if I had the choice. But I was surprised how far Inception fell down my list. I mean, maybe even by the end of the day, it might even, you know, have to swap with Dark Knight Rises. It's just, I like it, but... Wait, what number do you have Inception? I have it at seven now, but it might actually drop one more just because the more I think about it, um, I just kind of feel, I think about the sort of the, the missed opportunities as opposed to the opportunities that were taken sometimes. Like, I'm editing that episode now, so like, I'm reflecting on it pretty hard. I think that's a movie that like, in my head, you remember the good stuff. And then when I was watching, I was like, oh, there's a lot in here that I actually don't kind of like. Like, the stuff doesn't really work for me. But like, just the ideas of like, the city unfolding and like, people like the, the slow falling to the kick and everything. Like, there's stuff in there that's great. It just feels like when you're watching, it's like, oh, I don't love this. Well, that's kind of how I would summarize Dunkirk, really, in a nutshell. And I guess Nolan, from a, a macro level, is when he's on, he is fucking on. And when it's bad, it's just like, it just runs through you like White Castle, man. It's just gone by the next day. Ew, okay. So my list, from the bottom, following Dunkirk, Insomnia, Inception, Rises, Interstellar, Night, Begins, Memento, Prestige. Nice. So to do from the top, just real quick, going one to ten. From the best to the worst, Prestige, number one, Memento, Batman Begins, Dark Knight, Interstellar, which I did not expect, Rises, Inception, Insomnia, Dunkirk, following. You like Insomnia more than Dunkirk, wow. Yes. Oh, I forgot. Obviously, I like Doodlebug more than all of the rest. Of course. Insomnia, I've been thinking about that. I might rewatch that now that we're done with sort of the first phase of Nolan and everything, because it's just something about Pacino's performance has really just been stuck in my mind. I got to go back and watch that movie. It's good. Dunkirk did really very little for me other than, you know, a couple of of neat drowning sequences that that's a trigger for me. And then uh, I liked, I just would have liked that movie more if it was about like Mark Rylance's fancy lad, good boy boat and... And everything else happened in the same timeline, and it didn't jump around a whole bunch. You can still have by land, by air, by sea. I like that concept, but the jumping around and the lack of character really made me disconnect continuously. Even only at, at only 107 minutes, I, I couldn't get on board at any point. Uh, Chris, I don't know if you're aware of this. I, I just recently found this out myself, but there is an older Dunkirk movie out there somewhere. It's like I've an old that. black and white film. Yeah, I've not seen it. I didn't have time to watch it for this, but you know, maybe that might be more along the lines of what you're looking for, like what this, what people may have thought this yeah. might have presented itself as. It's a good story. I just don't think Nolan's the guy to do a war movie. I think he's proven that. And and he's clearly not, because this was one of his most critically acclaimed movies, and I don't I don't understand, but I, I guess he's the guy who should do really, really vanilla war movies. Sure, why not? Fuck it. If Spielberg can do it, he can do it. Well, maybe it's out of his system. Yeah, I hope so. You know, and then he'll get back to the more, like, running, gunning, boom, bam, flashy in the pan kind of stuff, because he's really great at that stuff. And I, I don't want to say I want him to make dumber movies, but I just feel like he could make some amazing blockbuster films if he just sort of like leaned back a little bit on trying to say so much in a movie and like even in this movie like yeah it's like war but like that's it like you only you know you see it they don't really discuss the politics of war or anything in here so even then he's just sort of hanging his coat on the on the uh on like the theme of war and stuff but like i would love to see him do like a full-on real like disaster you know end of the world type movie or something i just i just think like for blockbusters like he could really add a sense of gravitas to those types of films but then when he tries to do something a little more which is considered like indie sensibilities i think at this 
this point, he's a little too beyond that. I, I don't know if he could ever really truly go back to the scope of something like Memento. I think he might be a little stuck in the epic, the epic size of these big movies. I think noir is his... Um, Bread and butter? Yeah, I guess so. Whether it's magic noir or like actual noir or superhero noir or whatever, it's fucking dream noir. I think that's his thing. And this, maybe he was going for a war noir with this, but it, it didn't do it for me. I, I like I like that dark character-driven stuff that he does, and, and that's where I want my Chris Nolan to be. Did we talk about the fact that this was perhaps his first in a long time movie without his brother having any part of it? I wasn't even aware of that. I was watching some behind the scenes and I didn't even notice he didn't pop up anywhere. Yeah, he was doing Westworld. This is like pure strain Chris here, which I would have thought would have been a good thing until I saw this. Well, that's interesting, too. We noticed a little bit with Soderbergh is, like, um, he'll he'll work, like, alone on the script for a few movies, then he'll bring in, like, writing partners, and you'll notice, like, a change when he goes back to making a movie by himself without writing partners or something, and I wonder if maybe his strengths lie in collaboration. I don't know necessarily if... Maybe it's the fact that he it wasn't the Brothers Nolan here. Something might be missing from that aspect, but that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that, but I definitely feel like this feels like a different type of Nolan movie, so there's something about that. I do want to point out, as we're sort of wrapping up here, that we did Nolan because following Steven Soderbergh, he's kind of the opposite Soderbergh in that he's not just doing two movies a year and a mixture of big and little, he's just doing exclusively big ones. I did not realize that, you know, Chris is going to be basically the opposite of Tobin in that, like, they have zero movies in common that they like in Christopher Nolan's oeuvre, so truly the opposite of Tobin in that regard. But, Chris, we loved having you here. I think you'll be back at some point down the road whenever schedules align. When you're a doctor, you're able to take off from work so to just talk about movies. We could do David Lynch with you, so eventually that's coming, but I think your your little run here on Christopher Nolan Cinemakers was a delight, and also because these movies just, for the most part, are pretty great. Yeah, I'll be hiding out back behind a Winkies, just waiting for you guys to, to summon me again. You're not going to the room above the gas station this time? <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, I guess I'll be at that room. Got a light? I'm going to go turn into a tea kettle for a couple years. Sure. Anybody else have anything else to say about either this movie or Christopher Nolan or this run of Cinemakers? Because this is the last episode for now in the feed. We'll be back, I think, probably a little bit later this year for like a short run thing. Maybe we'll do a one-off here or there. But this is the end for now. So next week, there will be no new episode of Cinemakers, but it will be back at some point. So stay subscribed if you are subscribed. Oh, wait. Let's make a quick a quick guess, a quick prediction. Do we get to the David Lynch season before Christopher Nolan puts out a new movie? No. Hmm. I don't... Uh, Is he working on a new movie or no? I thought we looked into this and I was very wrong about thinking that he was. I say yes, but it's a very sort of iffy yes. Well, because I feel like of the people that we want to do, in my head at least, there's like the big three that we haven't done yet, which is David Fincher, which Tobin will be back for. There's David Lynch, which you'll be back for. And there's Tarantino, who nobody signed up for, weirdly enough. Wow. I feel like those are three that I want to do more than most of the directors, and I think would be popular enough to sort of propel this podcast, as intermittent podcast forward. I think just based on how much I know that Mike and I like all their movies, I'll probably get to those sooner rather than later. It's just a matter of finding time to, you know, do eight-ish episodes of Tarantino or, like, ten-ish for Fincher or, depending on how we break down Twin Peaks, anywhere between, like, 12 and, like, 30 episodes, you know, of David Lynch, so I say yes as well. Cool. I don't know. I just thought that'd be fun to, to throw your money The bigger on. question is, what will happen first? We do David Lynch, Chris is a doctor, or Christopher Nolan puts out a new movie? <laughs> Dr. <Doctor> Chris? <laughs> yeah, good case scenario, that's only two years 
three years from now, so. Oh, if it's three years from now, we're definitely going to get David Lynch before that. Oh, okay, then. Well, I think. Maybe not. I don't know. Who can say? Well, all I'd like to say is thank you, Chris, for joining us for this round of Cinemakers. It's, it's been a blast. It's been really cool having someone else on here, and I'm just glad that you were really into this and you wanted to do this, and yeah, it's just been a lot of fun, and I look forward to whenever you're coming back. I bet Joe Two would do Tarantino. Oh, that'd be good. That'd be so perfect. Yeah. Sign him up. Just give it to him. (laughs) The reason he popped in my head is because as we're recording this, since we last recorded, Joe Two and I wrote Chris's bio. So now Chris has a page on cageclub.me. So you can go check that out. Oh, cool. They wrote my bio too. You guys should be pro bio writers for for professionals. <laughs> yeah. You can go to Chris's page and just like all of our pages on cageclub.me slash hosts or just cageclub.me slash Chris, you can click at the link at the bottom and just see all the episodes that he's guested on because he's been on Cage Club and Keanu Club and Watch the Throne and he'll be on, hopefully, our upcoming podcast too. But yeah. And he's been on Boyfriend Material, right? And he's been on Third Time's a Charm. So he's all over. The, he's he's part of the connective tissue of Cage Oh yeah. Club. I'm like this. I'm not quite like a, a, a Nick Fury level, but I'm like a Scarlet Witch maybe of this connected universe uh i i don't know i mean you're close to hawkeye okay. you were the you were because your show that's what we, no mike next time we do a case over visit that's what we have to do we have to not recast batman with the actors we do we need to recast the mcu with the <laughs> yes. hosts and see who's who because now and again it was like the third or fourth sh- second or third show or fourth it was in the initial yeah. second phase so you're yeah so i came in with monkey club where i was there for like a minute and then i came back to the regular thing so it is, it is very hawkeye you're right yeah, you were yeah. on show tie for two and also number five. Because, like, at the same time, Keanu and Zack Attack and Monkey Club launched. Monkey Club died so that now and again could live. So this is what Joe said about bios. He says, everyone's so shy about writing their bio, so they have to deal with my warped perceptions of them, their choice. I'm like, what makes this person them? And then I make jokes about love that. It. I love that. I desperately want to hear that boy talk about From Dust Till Dawn, so put him on the Tarantino season. Well, Tarantino had nothing to do with From Dust well, Till Dawn. Yeah. He wrote it. He wrote it. Would we do that? He Well, I mean, he's in it. He wrote it. And he... He was, I mean, where it is, he, they co-directed it, but, you know, the, the Director's Guild's like, you can only put one name on this movie, so Rodriguez his, got the title. Would you do a segment of Four Rooms? Like, I don't, I don't what, where, where's the cutoff? I would love to talk about True Romance, but, like, he didn't direct that. Like, is that is is that a cinemaker if he didn't make it? He just no, wrote it? No, because it's about directors, right? Yeah, so only the films they direct? We'll have to figure that out. Right, because we're going to do From Dust Till Dawn for Robert Rodriguez at some point, so... Maybe we'll do, like, an Asterix episode. We'll throw that in there or something. We'll figure it out. Bonus episode. But yes, thank you, Chris, for joining us. It's been a fun ride. I wouldn't have revisited a lot of Nolan's movies if I didn't do this. I'm so happy I got to go back to Memento. Uh, it, it has been over a decade. I'm happy I got to know my true feelings about Inception, which I thought I really liked for a long time. And I'm glad that I got to settle in on the Batman trilogy and Interstellar as movies that I kind of like, but I don't know when I'm going to really watch them again. It's been a fun ride. Maybe this time, finally, for once, for the first time since maybe Dark Knight, I will see a Christopher Nolan movie in theaters and not regret missing it. Maybe. Who can say when that'll be, what that'll be? Who knows? But for all things Cinemakers, all 10 episodes of this, all 30, whatever, 33 of Soderbergh, and the other one that we did on Fetty Alvarez, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Check out all 19 or 20 or however many shows we have announced at this point when this episode comes out. we got a couple more, a handful more launching in the next six months. Just poke around, cageclub.me, see what you like. Check out our host pages, see episodes that Chris has been on if you like his voice. If you want to hear him get real angry about some bad movies... 
there's plenty of opportunities to do that too. So Keanu Club. Yep. <laughs> the Watcher. <laughs> yeah. If you want to hear Chris's badass Dragula impression, check out that episode. I still have that as like a little sound file on my desktop. That should be my ringtone. I like it. So cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. You can also email us, cinemakers at cageclub.me. We'll read it the next time that we do an episode. Probably will be a one-off with some directors who only done two or three things. Who knows what that'll be? And then we're going to come back, I think, this fall, this winter, with a short run of six or eight episodes about some director TBD right now. Anyway. I'm Jimmy Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. I've been Chris Podcasts. And we'll see you next time, whenever that is, for whoever it is, right here on Cinemakers. Bye.